listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. In this episode, we have part two of our series on the supply chain and labor with Steve Vichelli. But first, the news. It's been over a year since California voted to approve the infamous Proposition 22, a ballot measure that stripped rideshare drivers of their rights as employees. And since then, rideshare companies have been busy trying to replicate the Prop 22 model by pushing similar legislation in other states. Recently, the Boston Globe reported that Lyft made the largest political donation in Massachusetts history, $14.4 million, to, quote, fund a phalanx of consultants, pollsters, and signature gatherers to push a Prop 22-style ballot initiative. The measure would ensure that rideshare companies could continue to keep their drivers classified as independent contractors, thereby allowing the companies to avoid having to adhere to labor law, provide unemployment benefits, etc. In California, as we reported earlier, Prop 22 effectively excluded rideshare drivers from a groundbreaking set of labor protections for gig workers that might have led many independent contractors to be reclassified as employees. Both these gig worker measures basically guarantee that even though Uber and Lyft drivers may treat their driving like a full-time job and be wholly dependent on those companies to provide them with work and to determine their working conditions, they would not be deemed employees. You may wonder why voters would approve of such a measure. Well, the rideshare industry has figured out a clever way to sweeten the deal by putting some protections for workers in the legislation, like limited health benefits and sick pay provisions. But overall, it's not nearly what they would have gotten if they were considered actual employees. More importantly, independent contractors, as non-employees, would not be covered by federal and state protections for union organizing and collective bargaining. And of course, that's the point. Uber and Lyft's business model is based on generating huge revenues from their app users while avoiding any legal obligations and liabilities as the boss of the drivers who use their app. The industry collectively spent more than $200 million to promote Prop 22, so it's likely that more huge donations will pour into the Massachusetts campaign in coming months. The website for the rideshare industry group Flexibility and Benefits for Massachusetts Drivers, which is, by the way, funded by Uber and Lyft, boasts that the ballot measure would provide a base wage for drivers of 120% of the state minimum wage, or $18 an hour, and, quote, secures the overwhelmingly popular flexibility that app-based rideshare and delivery drivers currently enjoy, unquote. But, as we've reported before, the notion that classifying rideshare drivers as employees would automatically rob them of their flexible schedules is a myth. What employee status does do is help ensure that drivers are not exploited or denied basic social welfare protections. By the way, the claim that drivers would make $18 an hour has been countered by a study by the University of California Berkeley Labor Center, which found that under the measure's pay structure, which excludes much of the working time that drivers spend in their cars, the actual earnings of drivers could amount to as little as $4.82 per hour. If the question gets enough signatures, it will be on the November ballot, and labor groups will once again go head-to-head with the industry lobby that claims to be advocating on drivers' behalf. But the rideshare companies are going to have to contend with the courts as well. Remember, Proposition 22 was ruled unconstitutional by a California Superior Court last fall and is now being appealed. And the Massachusetts measure was triggered in large part by a lawsuit by State Attorney General Mara Healey, which charges that Uber and Lyft have misclassified drivers as independent contractors. After a 10-day strike, 8,000 workers at King's Supers and City Market grocery stores in Colorado have a deal for a contract that the union has called, quote, the most significant wage increase ever secured by a UFCW local for grocery workers, end quote. 
The workers are members of UFCW Local 7, and the deal includes first-year wage increases for long-standing employees, wage increases in excess of $5 per hour for some workers, better health care and protected pension benefits, more stringent safety measures in the workplace to protect employees and customers, and new paths to full-time employment opportunities for King Supers and City Market workers. Worker safety was a key issue in this fight, not just around COVID-19 protections, where, of course, grocery store workers have been essential workers throughout the pandemic and received bonus hazard pay of $2 extra an hour for just a couple of short months. But also, there was an issue around violence in the workplace. Recently, a King Supers in Boulder was the site of a mass shooting, and workers say they've received other threats of gun violence. The UFCW had recently released a survey of 10,000 workers at King Super's parent company, Kroger, a familiar name to belabored listeners and dissent readers, and the country's largest grocery store chain and fourth largest private employer. The survey found that 14% of Kroger workers in the surveyed areas have been homeless in the past year, 36% worried about eviction, and more than three-quarters of them met the U.S. Department of Agriculture's definition of food insecure, with 34% of the respondents skipping or reducing meal size in order to get by. These, we should note, are the unionized workers. Kim Cordova, president of Local 7, told Jacobin's Alex Press, quote, they took away hazard pay and then weeks later, the CEO got a 21 percent pay increase. That raise, Alex wrote, meant that CEO McMullen now makes 909 times more than the median Kroger worker. She also noted, quote, an additional point of dispute between workers and Kroger concerns the company's push to replace union jobs with independently contracted labor, such as is offered through staffing agencies or gig companies like Instacart. Last month, the union filed a federal lawsuit against Kroger over the violation. We had workers that do the shopping in our stores, and we represented delivery drivers, explains Cordova. Kroger shut down our home shop departments to outsource our jobs to Instacart, which means low-wage, unbenefited workers. She adds that the company is now using such third-party entities to stock shelves at stores as well, end quote. It is not immediately clear from the reporting on the end of the strike whether such gig work is banned in the new contract or limited in some way, but what is clear is that companies will attempt to keep using these gig workers to undermine union workforces. Still, congratulations to the King Supers workers, and here's to more essential workers getting long-deserved raises. Remember Striketober and all the excitement there was over this apparent wave of labor organizing happening across the country? Well, while it's true that we've seen some notable unionization campaigns and some inspiring examples of workers taking collective action to hold their employers accountable, the fact is, as a whole, union representation and membership have been steadily declining for many years. And the latest statistics from the Department of Labor are a sobering read for folks who had speculated that one of the knock-on effects of the pandemic might be inadvertently strengthening unions by compelling workers to be more militant. So there was an increase in union representation in 2020, but in 2021, it dipped down again. Still, it's more complicated than that. The Economic Policy Institute reports that, quote, the share of workers who were represented by a union fell by 0.5 percentage points between 2020 and 2021, from 12.1% to 11.6%. But between 2019 and 2021, the full pandemic period so far, unionization rates were unchanged at 11.6%. At the same time, quote, the number of workers in unions dropped in 2021 by 137,000, on top of a drop of 444,000 in 2020. 
for a total decline of 581,000 between 2019 and 2021, unquote. Pretty grim. I spoke with EPI policy analyst Margaret Poydock about what to make of the decline in union coverage. So like you said, uh, the share of workers who were represented by a union fell substantially between 2021 and 2020. Um, it fell about a point five percentage points. Um, in 2020, it was 12.1%. And then in 2021, it was 11.6%. But if you look between 2019 and 2021, you know, like the full period of the pandemic so far, unionization rates actually were unchanged. They were consistently 11.6%. Um, but if you if we're going back to um, kind of asking why unionization rates jumped in 2020 from, again, from 116 to 12.1%, it's in large part because of this thing called the like pandemic composition effect. The fact that the jobs that were lost in 2020 were more concentrated in industries with low unionization rates, such as uh, leisure and hospitality. And so that pandemic composition effect began to unwind in 2021 as the same types of less unionized jobs came back and offset the increase of uh, unionization that occurred in 2020. So given that this is sort of an extraordinary circumstance, can we discern any broad trend lines from this data, or is everything that happens during this time just sort of a weird aberration? We will probably continue seeing this kind of like trampoline effect as we are uh, continuing in the pandemic. But this data shows also that we are continuing a decline in unionization. Um, it's a long-term trend that we are, have been seeing for decades. And it really can kind of contrasts, though, with what we're seeing uh, in the labor movement, um, as well as people's opinions about unions. So, you know, in 2019 um, and in 2021, union membership is kind of stuck at 11.6%. But if you look at studies that show if a worker was asked if they would like to join a union, it's nearly 48% said they would if they had the opportunity. Or if you look at, you know, the recent Gallup poll that came out in September, um, their like annual poll of polling of union um, favorability, it's at a decade's high at 68% of people view unions favorably. So it's really the data that we're seeing from the BLS is really kind of not marrying or it's kind of opposite of what people actually feel about unions. And you kind of have to question, why is that? And the short answer is it's, it's really hard for workers to join a union and there are many obstacles and um, we need to make remedies <laughs> to make it easier for workers to join unions because uh, there's clearly uh, interest in unions. So there is some hope that the PRO Act might remedy some of these problems. And I think um, some parts of the PRO Act might have been incorporated into the Build Back Better bill. But is that just kind of dead in the water now? I wouldn't say it's dead in the water. Um, the PRO Act, I think, last March in 2020, it passed bipartisan support. Um, and like you said, there were certain provisions in that were in Build Back Better if it were to pass. And that was mainly on, um, mainly concerning civil monetary penalties, because under the law currently, there are no fines if an employer is found to have violated um, labor law right now. Um, and the PRO Act, as well as Build Back Better, would impose those fines. Um, I wouldn't say it's dead in the water. I think if we keep pushing, uh, it's clear that workers, again, favor unions. Um, and so there's real popularity in passing the PRO Act. Um, 
we do need to get uh, at least three more Democrats on board on the Senate side. But I, I, I still feel um, that there is hope that is, this is a bipartisan issue. It's, it's kind of like, why ha- aren't you doing it? It seems like an easy thing to do. Last year, we had um, some, you know, a little flurry of excitement around Striketober, so-called Striketober and mm-hmm. uh, Strikes Giving. And there was a sense, at least anecdotally, that workers seemed to be getting maybe a little bit more uh, militant as a result of some of the existential threats and insecurity brought on by the pandemic. Would you say that the pandemic has had any kind of, can we say, beneficial effect for worker organizing? Yeah, I, I would say it's hard to say. Um, but I, I do think people have realized that, you know, during the pandemic, how terrible their jobs are, and there is actually a solution to make their jobs better. And that is through unions. So I think that's a bright spot. Um, I think uh, in the, the poll I mentioned, the Gallup poll, uh it shows that like, younger workers in particular f- finds um, unions or are in favor of unions more than um, people over 35. Like they're just really like really um, supportive of such. So I see that kind of as a bright spot, but like it can't get worse than this. So like people really uh, finding interest in unions right now shows that like there is a staying power with that. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Any interesting points that you came across in the data that you want to conclude with? One thing that our our report does provide like lots of information. Like we do kind we do delve into the BLS release, but we also provide a lot of information and great citations towards just benefits of unionization in general, which I'm not sure if I'm pretty sure you you know, your listeners are probably very familiar with, yes, but we, probably, they're, <laughs> they're part of the converted at this point, but yes, it's good to yeah, reaffirm but, this. Yes. Yeah. Um, but we just say, we just released a paper um, that shows, you know, unions help, you know, your workplace, but there's also spillover effects in your communities um, where even like high, high unionization rates are consistently associated with much broader set of pos- positive spillover effects, such as, um, you know, minimum wage, but also better health care benefits, easier access to unemployment insurance benefits, access to paid leave and sick leave. Um, so I just want to kind of plug that in that the larger benefits of union. But again, I'm pretty sure your listeners know that. That was EPI policy analyst Margaret Poydock. Meanwhile, the push for a shorter work week continues with another major four-day week trial beginning this summer in Britain. The six-month trial at several companies will be run by Cambridge and Oxford Academics alongside Boston College, the UK four-day week campaign, and our friends at Think Tank Autonomy. Importantly, of course, these trials are for a shorter work week with no loss in pay, an attempt to prove that companies can be just as productive or even more so with fewer working hours. Of course, we here at Belabored are less worried about proving how productive workers are, but we fully support working less for the same or increased wages. The study also aims to look at environmental impacts of a shorter working week and the gender equality impacts of shorter working hours. As long-time Belabored listeners may know, researchers like Janet Gornick have long called for shorter working hours as a way not only to give us all a break, but also to equalize domestic labor burdens in the home, which, of course, the pandemic has called extra attention to. 
According to The Guardian, the companies signed up for the trial include software firms and a medical not-for-profit and range in size from about 20 staff members to several with more than 100. Edinburgh-based Canon Medical Research Europe is one of the companies, and its president told The Guardian, quote, We recognize that working patterns and the focus we all give to our work-life balance has changed substantially during the pandemic. As a responsive employer, we are always looking at how we can adapt our working practices to ensure that employees find their time with us is meaningful, fulfilling, and productive. For this reason, we're keen to pilot a four-day week to see if it can work for us. It remains the case that the companies trialing shorter work week tend to be white-collar firms. For hourly workers who are often piling up multiple jobs to make ends meet, just without loss in pay won't be enough to make a shorter work week worthwhile. But those are also exactly the workers who could use some more time off. And so it'll be interesting to see if proposals and trials are forthcoming for workers like, for example, those grocery store workers I was just talking about at Kroger. Maybe expanding something like Unite Here's One Job Should Be Enough campaign. Anyone know anything about such organizing? Hit us up at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. We survived the holidays, sort of, but the supply chain crisis talk continues. And so here at Belabored, we are continuing our intermittent series on what the supply chain is and what the work of keeping it running looks like. Today, we're joined by Steve Vichelli, a sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania who studies freight transportation. His book, The Big Rig, Trucking and the Decline of the American Dream from University of California Press, explains how long-haul trucking went from being one of the best blue-collar jobs to one of the toughest. And his current research project, Driverless, Autonomous Trucks and the Future of the American Trucker, explores self-driving trucks and their potential impact on labor and the environment. Steve joined us to talk about trucking, deregulation, the so-called driver shortage, and how truck drivers were Uber before Uber was thought of. So let's start off with um, where we are in the terms of the so-called supply chain crisis. Um, what did we see happen sort of over the holidays and has th- have things stabilized at all? Well, we're entering what is traditionally a a slack period for, for freight movement. You know, we're, we're getting through the, um, the return season now. And usually we have a bit of uh, capacity available this time of year, as I'm sure you and your listeners have heard, you know, a big part of what has happened is just unprecedented demand. So, you know, we, we've seen a little bit of that decline, but we're still above uh, what's normal. So we're we're doing pretty well, all things considered, um, but we still have a, a big backlog uh, of orders. And I think now we're at this inflection point, potential inflection point, where we're waiting to see what happens in China. And of course, whether or not they're going to continue their zero COVID policy, which could result in more shutdowns or disruptions um, on, on the manufacturing side. Um, which could which could very shortly thereafter affect us um, in the way that it did previously. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things we're hearing a lot is that there's a trucker shortage. But so what is, and we'll get deeper into a lot of the, the roots of this, but what is the reality of this so-called trucker shortage? So the, the trucker shortage, the, the best way to understand this, and I know it's it's a bit disconcerting for folks when they hear it, but maybe not so much to your listeners. Um, but the best way to understand this is as some lobbying rhetoric. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you 
<laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, it's brilliant lobbying rhetoric. So, um, you know, it's like a master narrative. And it really, if you're a big fucking company, it doesn't matter what you want. You can, you can fit it under this narrative. So if you want to increase the, the weight of trucks on public roads, which does more damage, um, you justify that to lawmakers as you know part of a, a solution to a driver shortage. If you want to get more public subsidies to train workers in a high turnover industry like trucking, well, there's a trucker shortage. If you want to loosen the regulations that control how many hours truck drivers can drive in a day, well, there's a trucker shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, and most recently in the infrastructure bill, which apparently um, this narrative swayed uh, the Senate, to include a provision in there, in there that will allow um, interstate motor carriers to start training drivers under 21 years old. And of course, that's because there's a truck driver shortage. Um, so it's a very effective uh, master narrative of what's happening, but it runs completely contrary to what we know from, from research and what just about any experienced truck driver will tell you, which is that we actually have a trucker uh, surplus so we have been training hundreds of thousands of people per year to become truck drivers, but those jobs are so bad in some segments. Now, very, you know, we got to be really careful. There are still some great truck driving jobs out there. Some of them are unionized. Most of them are not, but they're for private carriers and, and some of the uh, better carriers that are, that move parcels like UPS. And in those jobs, we don't see a lot of turnover. Um, in some segments, like the long haul segment, we see a ton of turnover. And what they're doing is they're just training, you know, um, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people per year. And those people only stay for three months or so. So that has meant that we have millions of people who have trained to become a truck driver and are currently licensed to be a truck driver um, who just aren't doing the job. So when we're talking about the supply chain, right, which gets talked about as though it's one thing when it is many, many different things. Talk a little bit about sort of the role of, of trucking in this long chain of production and logistics and the different kinds of trucking we're talking about, too. So there's, you know, there are as many kinds of trucking as there are products that we want to move in the economy. Virtually everything that that you and I consume uh, that sustains and, and entertains us uh, is going to come at some point uh, in its journey on a truck. Um, so that means that we have everything from drivers who, uh, who've been in, in the news a lot lately, who hander, handle containers at shipping ports, right? Um, and they may be really providing a short link between modes like a ship and rail. Um, and then, of course, on the other end of, of that rail journey, they may, there may be a truck again. Um, and then there's there's truck uh, shipments that go long distance, point to point, you know, from coast to coast. Uh, that that's called uh, truck load, you know, meaning that you have a full shipment of goods that that take up the capacity of of the truck. And then you have what's called less than truck load, and less than truck load could be up to ten thousand pounds, could be anything from a couple hundred pounds to ten thousand pounds. And that's going to be picked up in a smaller truck or in a local truck that brings it to a terminal. And then all uh, gets combined with a whole bunch of other stuff based on where it's going. And then it goes over the road in, um, in a trailer and these combined loads to another terminal where it gets broken down. And then there's a uh, parcel, which we're all familiar with something like FedEx or UPS or 
um, DHL. Those are all for hire, meaning that these are trucking companies that move stuff for somebody else. Then then we have a whole other big segment called private trucking, which is going to be your in-house fleets like Walmart or Budweiser or someone like that who is moving products that they either produce or, or sell. Right. So um, all of this is is a bit complicated, again, when we talk about things like a trucker shortage or whatever. Um, but so when we're talking about the problems that we've been seeing lately and the places where there might be something like a driver shortage, um, what's happening there? Sort of what is the role of trucking and which part in this sort of crisis, again, which with big air quotes around the word crisis. Yeah. So there has been a crisis in some parts of trucking since the industry was deregulated, which was in 1980. So the Motor Carrier Act of 1980, which was signed into law by President Carter, uh, deregulated interstate trucking. At that time, the trucking industry was almost entirely unionized. The Teamsters set the wages and working conditions for virtually every truck driver um, in the U.S. in one single master agreement called the National Master Freight Agreement. Big collective bargaining uh, process with all the major employers and even the employers who weren't part of it followed it as kind of the industry standard. That went out the window when the industry was deregulated and, and a bunch of upstart companies um, those truckload companies that I was describing before entered the market and began uh, hauling what was previously regulated freight and, and just made the jobs pretty much terrible. So <laughs> prior to that, the a typical truck driver made over $100,000 a year in today's dollars um, and was home every night. The first thing that companies started to do was send trucks further and further and not get drivers home, which is when we developed um, the sleeper cab. Or Well, the sleeper cab existed, but it wasn't used widely. But that's when sleeper cabs became common. And, and very soon, within a few years of deregulation, the standard was that you essentially lived out of the machine that you drove, um, which was an, a relatively uncommon thing before. Uh, and along with that came lots and lots of unpaid time, right? So the time that you spent waiting at docks, the time that you spent sleeping over the road, None of that was compensated. Drivers literally started to, you know, um, drive themselves to death, right? They would, they would work until fatigued and fall asleep. Um, and so we started to re-regulate the industry for safety and things like that, licensing, um, et cetera. And so that's really when the crisis started was, you know, experienced drivers fled the industry. They said, you know, no, thank you. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to just leave, go to something else, or at least go to better companies, and it's at that point that the driver shortage became uh, a thing. And believe it or not, that was in 1987. That was the, was the first year that the American Trucking Associations published their first analysis of the, quote, driver shortage. And they've essentially been publishing, you know, a report like that every year since, <laughs> except when the economy is, is in recession. And so the current crisis is really an amplification, I think, of, of that, um, you know, that high churn that they have where they need to suck in so many, you know, tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of workers to keep the trucks moving and the tighter labor markets in COVID that we see, you know, um, in many segments of the economy are, are making that problem worse for those bad employers. Yeah. So, 
I want to talk a little bit about the history of, of trucking deregulation, because like in a lot of ways, right, this was the precursor to Uber, right? The way that we moved truckers into being quote unquote independent contractors and all of that. Um, so can you tell us a, a little bit about how that happened and sort of what the arguments were around it and for it? So trucking, you know, trucking deregulation was really among the very first airlines um, w- was preceded trucking uh, in the in the Carter administration. Uh, that was that was the first major industry that the the deregulators kind of cut their teeth on. But that was part of a much longer effort on the part of conservatives and and you know big corporate interests to deregulate the economy that really had its origins in response to the New Deal. Uh, and and so there were all manner of efforts to fund research and to you know shape ideas around the costs of regulation, and they ranged e- everywhere from you know uh, dissertation uh, fellowships to um, chairships in in you know economics departments to conferences and and workshops for. Uh, to bring together academics and policymakers, and this this work went on, funded by major foundations um, and think tanks, to you know ask one single question, which was you know what are the costs of regulation, and and so the you know the academic research was extraordinarily clear <laughs> and unified um, in in its assessment of trucking regulation, which was that it had tremendous costs that were borne ultimately by consumers. And so the the political movement on the side of deregulation was able to assemble this really diverse coalition of folks, um, you know, everybody from, from Ralph Nader to Sears and Roebuck, uh, to advocate for deregulation. And, and it was essentially opposed only by the Teamsters. Who, who were portrayed, you know, largely as sort of self-interested labor. Um, but what was remarkable, and so, and so Congress, you know, was quite bipartisan in its uh, support for deregulation because it, you know, the, again, the, the academic case for it, the economic case for it had only asked one question. What, what are the costs? No one really thought about the benefits and in, in high of, of regulation. And in hindsight, it turned out to be a remarkably narrow and, and um, incomplete Sort of public debate as a result, and, and the results of trucking deregulation, of course, would affect truck drivers, um, whose wages would plummet. But they would affect highway safety. Um, they would really become the the foundation. Cheap cheap trucking services would become the foundation for global supply chains, which, of course, would have you know major impacts on U.S. manufacturing and and manufacturing workers, um, who are more likely today to be moving products made somewhere else, right, than, than manufacturing products made in, in the United States. And so um, it's, a, it's a pretty remarkable story of, of how class power really um, can shape public understanding and then public policy. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I found really interesting when reading about this was also this comes at a time when there is pressure on the Teamsters, for instance, to open up these jobs to women and to men of color, right? Because otherwise this was mostly a, a white male, good jobs kind of industry. And so that that also contributes to this pressure that turns into deregulation, which means that now there are lots of women and men of color driving in really crappy conditions. 
<laughs> That's right. Um, and, and, you know, this is a pattern that we see o- over and over again, right, where um, we, we see labor market conditions decline, right, um, working conditions decline, and then um, new sources of, of labor, uh, you know, are, are, are brought into the industry to supply, you know, um, you know, cheaper and cheaper services with with labor, and we're seeing that today um, in in spades in the trucking industry and in freight movement more generally, um, and in new kinds of of services like last mile delivery, where Amazon in particular is um, bringing all you know um, whole new kinds of new categories of labor. Traditionally, trucking and freight movement has relied on white and and black men as the primary labor source. Um, increasingly it's, it's immigrants and people of color. And to some extent in last mile delivery, um, women, though women have not played a, a major role in over the road trucking and still represent probably around 5% or so of, <laughs> of, uh, truck drivers. Yeah. So the, the thing you mentioned about safety also just made me think of this driver in, I think, Colorado who, um, lost control of his truck, got into an accident, and is now being sentenced to some unbelievable prison time because of it. Uh, which is just sort of a yeah, <laughs> it's a horrible story that doesn't really tell us that much, and also kind of tells us a lot. It, it does. I mean, so and I think we have the coverage of the story has been one largely of you know what this worker did, right? Um, and it it has the better coverage, which there has not been enough of yet, uh, you know, has has asked the question of the accountability of of regulation and and the employer in this case. So it's hard for for many people who um, aren't as cynical as I am sometimes to believe. <laughs> <laughs> but the trucking industry operates in, and I know this may sound like an overstatement, it's not, in continual violation of fundamental labor and safety regulations. I'm shocked. So, yeah. So I can't believe it. So we have, and, and the two most important ones are, well, first of all, truckers are, are exempt from overtime, um, at least interstate truck drivers. Some, some are subject to stay within a state may be eligible for overtime under state laws, but but they, they're excluded from overtime uh, regulation under the FLSA. Um, they are not excluded from minimum wage protection, but the industry regularly violates minimum wage protection by not counting all of the time that truck drivers work. And that relates to the, the other major area of violation that is, is the norm, which is the hours of service, which are supposed to be the rules that that govern how many hours drivers can work in a day and, and drive in a day. And because the industry largely self-regulates, they, they write their own laws using these lobbyists um, and particularly opaque industry, they've essentially created a, a system in which um, the drivers only log the hours that they drive and not the other hours that they work. So they're supposed to log all the time that they spend waiting at docks or dealing with paperwork, inspecting, fueling um, as work time. But since they're paid by the mile that they drive, um, most of them, they try to undercount those hours as much as possible to preserve more driving time. And so 
then when companies go to you know what they do, what they call true up for minimum wage, where they take basically the the paycheck and divide it by the number of hours worked, that denominator is much lower than it should be because they use the hours of service logs um, as the hours worked, and the drivers are systematically underrepresenting those hours in order to try to drive more to earn more pay. Yeah. And then you end up exhausted and I'm totally shocked to hear that that results in accidents. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the things that you, you wrote of this was that um, the, this project of deregulation um, quote, changed the very identity of truckers at certain career stages. So they believe they are small business owners and not workers, um, which is of course like the neoliberal project, right. Of convincing people to sort of give up solidarity for entrepreneurialism um, and to individualize everything, which again brings us back to this poor guy who's now facing prison time. Um, and yeah, and I, again, I, I see this so much as as the story that like leads us to the gig economy. Yeah, in the, in the book, I really try to uh, uh, do an archaeology, if you will, of of these conceptions that truck drivers have of themselves, and and you know using comparisons of more experienced drivers to new drivers, but also, you know, what drivers have said over time um, and, and the, the ways that they've conceptualized the labor market, their work, right, and, and their role um, as an employee or, or business owner, as some of them see themselves today who are in um, these independent contractor relationships. And this is really a story of, you know, what I, I call in the book a, a class project, um, of employers just gaining complete dominance over the labor market institutions, right? The the, the processes of recruiting um, new labor, the, of training new labor, uh, of its initial employment, which again used to be highly contested by the power of labor in the form of of the Teamsters, most importantly. Um, but after deregulation, became something that was completely and totally in the control of of the very largest employers who've become the gateway uh, for, for new truck drivers. And, you know, again, it goes back to all the way back to that, (laughs) that driver shortage narrative, which beyond being lobbying rhetoric to convince Congress of, of whatever law you want to pass that, that day or or month or year is also a a really great recruiting um, slogan for new labor and so every year when the American Trucking Associations puts out its um, its report on the number of truck drivers that claims the industry is short, you know, CNN and other major news outlets dutifully run that on the bottom of the screen, you know, saying, you know, shortage of 70,000 truck drivers this year. And, oh, my God, they can't get these workers to do these, you know, jobs that pay 80 or $90,000 a year. And you know, if you're an unemployed or underemployed worker, um, and you, you see that, of course, that's a that's about as powerful of a, a, a job ad as as you could see, and and that's really the start of um, you know the the process of convincing drivers that there's you know tremendous um, pay and and benefits available somewhere in the industry, and and then once you kind of have them in your system, and they're not making those wages. It, it sets them up for uh, an, the next part of the story, which is that, well, maybe you didn't find those wages that you were hoping for in, um, in your first job and you're working more hours and you're away from home more than, than you'd like to be. 
But there's this other position you could play uh, or role you could have in the company. And that's uh, if you become an owner operator, right? If you if you buy your own truck, you'll have more control over your home time and you'll start to get toward those those mythic salaries of, you know, $100,000 a year or more, or more that initially attracted you into the industry. Right, right. Um, so in your research, you talked to a lot of truck drivers, but also spent some time working as a truck driver. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of what the job is like doing it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I did. So I, um, I, I went to a, a regular old truck driving school controlled by a company, you know, um, uh, answered, you know, what was still at that point, uh, a newspaper ad, uh, <laughs> about 15 years ago now. Um, most of it's done online, of course, today, but, um, you know, you start out, and it, actually, let me step back. As a researcher, this was really important, you know, for understanding those that process of educating workers, because I went in knowing a little bit about the labor history of of the industry, and that's what guided what you know what the research, which was ultimately my dissertation, what it was you know ultimately interested in was this this shift in sort of the consciousness of workers. But I really didn't know that much about the work of truck drivers, so. Um, I went in very much like other workers who enter the industry. I had no idea, you know, what what I should be doing, what the job should look like, what the laws were. Um, and this company that I trained with, you know, explained all that to me. They said, you know, here's how you do the job. Um, here's what truck drivers are and what they do. You, you know, you get in the truck, you you get a your your sleeping roll and your your extra clothes and you go out on the road for, for weeks at a time. And, you know, at that point, um, satellite linked computers were ubiquitous and, you know, essentially you get in the truck, uh, you know, on a Monday morning and you get a, a set of, um, directions or, or locations and some load numbers and you pull out your book of maps. Um, today, of course, that's automated and the mapping and you start driving and you go pick up a load it might be, you know, for me, I would start out typically in upstate New York. Uh, I pick up an empty trailer, go get some Budweiser. I drive that out to the Midwest, maybe um, take it to Michigan, pick up some steel coils, bring those down to Alabama. In Alabama, I might pick up uh, rolls of paper, bring them to South Carolina. In South Carolina, I might pick up Gatorade or Auto Glass, bring it to Ohio. You know. Um, and then uh, from there, who knows, you know, maybe up to Maine, down to Florida. And I would do that for a, a couple of weeks. I average a little over 90 hours per week of what should have been logged as on duty time. Uh, but of course, it's really 24 hours a day that you're, you know, eating, sleeping um, and, and work schedule is just controlled by wherever the loads are, are starting and ending up. And it's exhausting. You know, you... Um, the miles just kind of blur together. You're coated in diesel fumes, uh, you know, 24 hours a day. You get a shower about every other day, yeah. eating crappy truck stop food and just waiting to get home, essentially. Yeah, yeah I, I've done a lot of driving, not professionally, just because I move and also am a journalist and like find truck stops fascinating places on so many levels, right? From the food, which I've eaten plenty of, to the showers, which I look at it in horror. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're kind of just like, all right, man, this is this is a thing. That would be exhausting. 
Um, so I want to get into a little bit about sort of policy forward looking now that we've talked about the past a bit. Um, one of the things obviously that is playing a role in all of these conversations right now is Assembly Bill 5 in California, which our regular listeners know a lot about. But um, maybe you could talk a little bit about the effect it had on truck drivers and also the legal challenges that are being brought to it by trucking employers. Yeah, so AB5 um, is really a, a fundamental, uh, a fundamentally new approach, at least for the over the last, you know, 40 years of history uh, to uh, the classification of, of truck drivers. And essentially for, for trucking, what it means is if, if you're a motor carrier and you utilize the services of a truck driver, they're your employee. Um, you know, of course, I'm sure you, you know, your, your listeners are, are familiar with other ways that we determine classification, right? 20 factor tests and control tests and of various sorts that are, you know, used by the IRS, social security administration and others to, uh, unemployment offices to determine whether or not someone's an employee. AB5 simplifies that with an ABC test. And the critical part for the trucking industry is um, that you're required to have a motor carrier authority in order to haul freight for the public, right? If you want to to move uh, goods for, for pay, you need to have a license to do that. Independent contractors who work in trucking operate under someone else's motor carrier authority. Um, If you had your own motor carrier authority and you were your own trucking company, which many, you know, individuals are, right? We do have lots of true owner operators in the United States. Um, The difference between those uh, owner operators and an independent contractor that is often conflated with those owner operators is that those independents have their own motor carrier authority. They are, they are their own small trucking company. Um, independent contractors, in contrast, typically don't have any interaction with the customer in terms of finding loads, pricing loads, um, finding their own freight. Uh, in most cases, they're dependent for all of the work that they do on that larger motor carrier, finding and pricing and dispatching them on on loads for the motor carrier's customer, right? They don't have customers of their own. So they, they never work independent of that uh, motor carrier's authority and, and resources, which can include, you know, the dispatchers and the, um, and the salespeople, et cetera. Many times those independent contractors are actually leasing or renting the truck from the motor carrier as well. So, so really, the only and if you were to to watch people work and talk to them about their work as as I do, um, the only difference that you would see is essentially in their paycheck. Um, the independent contractors get a whole bunch of stuff deducted from their pay um, before they before they um, before they get any take home pay, including the truck payment, the insurance, the the fuel. Etc. And for many of these drivers, especially the over-the-road ones, uh, that can mean that like every third week or so that they work, where they take some time off to go home, their pay doesn't exceed the expenses. Um, so they might make you know a thousand dollars one week, a thousand dollars the next, and then in the third week they will actually make no money at all or end up owing 
the company that they work for money. Um, so they'll, they'll have a negative paycheck in that in that third third week. And so AB five is is going to um, you know eliminate those kinds of, of relationships in in the state of California. Um, right now, the the law is is being challenged by the industry as violating federal preemption of state law. So the F quad A, which is the Federal Aviation Administration Reauthorization Act of 1993, uh, had a little provision in there that said that no state could uh, pass a law that affected the prices, routes, or service of an interstate motor carrier. And so AB5 uh, was challenged by the California Trucking Association. Um, There was an injunction against the law going into effect in trucking. Uh, The state then appealed along with the the Teamsters um, that that injunction. And in full disclosure, I was the the expert on that on that side of the the case. Um, It was then overruled by the Ninth Circuit. So it should have gone into could have gone into effect at that point. California Trucking Association has now appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so we are currently waiting to hear whether the Supreme Court will take up the case. They've asked the Biden administration's uh, new uh, solicitor general to offer the the administration's uh, stance on it. And we'll see whether or not AB5 um, is, is heard in the Supreme Court. And if not, if the Supreme Court decides to decides not to hear it, it will um, very soon thereafter go into effect in California. All right. Um, yeah. So that's one thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are many other things. Um, so I understand your your new research, your new project is about this question of automating trucking and self-driving trucks and, and, um, which is something we hear about really breathlessly a lot of the time, right? That this, all of this labor is going to be automated away and blah, blah, blah. And like, give us a little bit of a reality check on what is maybe possible short-term, longer-term, um, and what we should be actually worrying about. Yeah. So, um, a little shameless plug for anyone who's interested. There's I have a, a a first cut at my um, my research from 2018 that's available online um, at driverlessreport.org, and what that is is you know I spent a lot of time talking to the developers themselves about you know what is it that they're trying to do because you know the the, the simple way to look at this initially um, and it's understandable because it's new and you know people want to get a handle on it and you know, help people to start thinking about it. But, you know, the simple way to look at it was, okay, here's a truck that's going to drive itself. Um, doesn't that mean all truck drivers are going to lose their, their jobs? And, and so there are, you know, some, some complicating realities involved in, in the way that technology affects work, right? Um, and one of them for trucking is that truckers do a lot other than just drive. And, and so what I was Doing in the this um, early research and and in a little more depth now in my current research is looking at what the developers said they were going to build, what these machines actually would and wouldn't be able to do, and then overlaid it with the jobs that truckers do in all of their many tasks and and responsibilities. And so I came up with basically six different scenarios for the way that 
the technology that different developers were building might be used. And then I overlaid them on the on the current segments of the industry to look at, you know, the kinds of jobs that might be automated. And to simplify it down to the main point, you know, the, the big limitation on self-driving trucks as they're currently being developed is that they really can't handle complex environments. So the, the truck really has you know, three main um, chunks of work to do, the self-driving truck. One is to kind of figure out where it is and what's around it. And it, so it uses all kinds of maps and sensors to do that. Um, then it has to figure out, okay, what are these things and what are they likely to do and what should I do in response? You know, and this is really cutting edge artificial intelligence and machine learning. And then they actually need to, you know, control the vehicle um, and sort of keep track with, you know, accelerometers and, and things like that, how the how the vehicle's moving and then send appropriate commands to it, right? Well, it turns out that, you know, as, as technologists often do, when the problem is, is too difficult for the current state of the technology, you simplify the problem. And, and the way to simplify self-driving is to move it to highways rather than local environments. So local environments have parked cars and kids and people on bicycles and intersections and, and whatnot. Um, and highways obviously are much simpler, even though they're higher speed, um, they, you know, they don't have all those other things to figure out what, you know, what the behavior of is. So right now the, the focus is really on, and, and my concern is, you know, what are those jobs that involve lots of uninterrupted highway driving where it might be, uh, feasible to get a, you know, a strong return on investment and automate that, that high cost labor, um, in the, that part of the industry that does that you know, uninterrupted long haul driving. It turns out when we look at those jobs, they constitute about 300,000 of the 1.9 or so million um, trucking jobs that we have in the U.S. About 100,000 of them are really good, uh, often unionized jobs in those less than truckload carriers and at parcel carriers like UPS. And then another 200,000 or so are these jobs that are uh, very high turnover, the ones where we hear that there's a shortage of, of drivers. And so, uh, of course, automation is being offered under that master narrative of driver shortage um, as, a, as a solution. Yeah, um, right. So these these solutions in search of a problem, right, um, in yeah. some cases um, or in other cases are just solutions to the wrong problem. Um, so as we sort of wind down here, what are some solutions to all of these actually existing problems here, not the fake ones, but the real ones, um, that would actually help drivers have sustainable careers in trucking? Well, the, the great news for, um, for those who, who would help drivers and have a positive impact on the industry is that so much of what would help truck drivers is already on the books. That includes, you know, just basic minimum wage provisions that, that aren't enforced the, the limitations on, on overwork um, that are, you know, is, is involved in the hours of service regulations in the department of transportation. So we could do a lot just through enforcement, some really basic steps after that, 
would be to give truck drivers the same protection under FLSA that other workers in the U.S. Um, enjoy, and that the most important would be overtime. So if we just enforce minimum wage and overtime, uh, these jobs would improve dramatically. If, if truckers were paid for all the time that they actually work, that would go a long way. But we're, we're also subsidizing the problems with um, you know, the GI Bill, uh, the the Workforce Opportunity and Innovation Act, which um, you know is is funding a lot of this this turnover, uh, where you know companies are are not paying the full cost of the churn that they're creating and and what it costs to train a new worker. So we could stop subsidizing that by putting some basic conditions on these grants uh, by keeping track of turnover rates at, uh, for companies that receive grants and say. Hey, if you know a certain percentage of the workers that we're giving you money to train aren't working for you in a year or two years, you can't come back to the public trough and feed again. Um, so there's some really basic provisions that um, would just ensure that all the time that that truck drivers work is counted and fairly compensated, and that we're not subsidizing poor practices. That would that would go a long way. Yeah, I bet. Um... And then the last thing I wanted to, to close out with was that you've done some research around trucking and sort of green energy and making this industry, I mean, talk about being bathed in diesel fumes and things like that, um, which would make it, again, a, a better industry for the planet and also probably for the people who do it. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is one of those classic examples where, you know, um, bad jobs are, are you know, our worst enemy for, for climate. Um, and they're also, you know, not good for workers. Um, and you know, we, uh, so the, the people who most suffer from the, you know, dependence of the trucking industry on diesel fuel are truckers themselves. And I experienced this firsthand when I did my field work. I mean, you are, you're breathing diesel exhaust 24 hours a day. You, you just cannot get more than a few hundred feet from idling trucks. And so you're constantly breathing um, these dangerous carcinogenic particulates. Um, and it's, it's horrible. Um, just, you know, quickly, when I used to get home, you know, I'd be exhausted after weeks of work and I would just, you know, sort of strip off my clothes, hop in the shower and then go, you know, go to sleep for a day. And then, you know, I get back up and, you know, um, go into the bathroom and, you know, close to the hamper and I could just smell the, the reek of the diesel, you know, on, on my clothes, which, you know, I couldn't smell when I went before I showered and got away from it because you're just, you're just covered in it constantly and your hair, your skin, everything. Um, so, you know, having workers who are responsible for owning their own trucks, um, buying their own trucks means that they can't afford to invest oftentimes in the cleanest technology. It means that the big firms that actually control how efficiently the, the trucks are used don't have an incentive to, you know, invest in fuel efficient technology. We've seen that play out in the, the ports of Long Beach and L.A., where there's long been attempts to, you know, create clean truck programs that don't put the cost of those on on workers. Um, so those poor labor practices are are really important 
for for our ability to fight climate change. The big issue for trucks, and again, some sort of uh, shameless plug, but urbantruckports.com is is my website that uh, lays out an idea that I have for segmenting the duty cycle of trucks, which is a a, a fancy way of saying you know, using the right truck for the, for the right part of the job. Um, so in urban areas where trucks have, you know, stop and go traffic and where we really care about emissions, we should have electric trucks. And then on the highway where our batteries aren't yet up to snuff in terms of the amount of energy they can, um, they can provide and are too big and heavy for long haul trucks. Uh, we want super aerodynamic um, probably still diesel right now trucks, but hopefully hydrogen eventually. And so I have this idea for this um, these sets of truck parking lots, essentially outside points of congestion that would ring major cities. And electric trucks would have charging infrastructure there. So they would, you know, when traffic is light, be moving trailers, you know, into their final destination and then pulling outbound trailers out. And then we would have long haul trucks um, that would go to those points, never enter the cities and go back and forth between them. And that would increase the return on investment on on the different technologies for each part. But it would also get drivers home more often and create more local jobs and, and, and regular routes for long haul drivers. So we need to think about systemically about how freight moves and 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 be proactive about investments in infrastructure transportation infrastructure right now particularly road infrastructure is really reactive we say where's the where's the demand and and you know what do what do, what do consumers or customers of of transportation want um and we need to start thinking about the you know hundreds of billions of dollars that we spend on on road infrastructure um proactively and how we want to shape demand uh, to meet broader goals than just, you know, cheaper, faster. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was University of Pennsylvania sociologist Steve Vichelli. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that in which we talk about the pieces that we read and liked, but did not write. My pick for ARG is What Happened When a Trippy Art Collective Hit It Big, Then Unionized, by Adele Oliveira in The New Republic. Meow Wolf, an experimental art project and production company in Santa Fe, represents an increasingly common intersection in the world of art these days. Creativity crossed with capitalism. And that's what makes its new union such a pioneer in the avant-garde art scene. Its workforce has evolved over time from impoverished creatives making trash art in a so-called labor of love to employees who want to be paid what they're worth and who want their creative contributions to be honored with fair working conditions. Oliveira writes, quote, like many people in creative fields, they were once encouraged to see themselves as iconoclast outsiders laboring for free or close to nothing out of love for their art. But a dose of startup culture and a major infusion of cash changed everything. Now they want to be seen as workers for their value to be recognized the same way their companies is, unquote. The union represents the less celebrated side of Meow Wolf's meteoric rise, the sweat equity put in by its workers, and their ongoing struggle for recognition. That narrative offsets the so-called, quote, mythology of scrappy to successful, as technical director Emily Marquis described it. 
She told the New Republic, quote, the narrative that's missing is one that's told from the workforce's perspective. What we've gone through over the past several years, adapting to a company that grew insanely fast, interacting with parts of the world that most of us never expected to, unquote. The original members of the collective came together around 2008 and ran Meow Wolf without pay on a mission to subvert the conventions of the fine art world with edgy anti-establishment installation pieces. Their first big exhibit was a revamped bowling alley full of eclectic installations funded by a combination of a grant, a local private donor, and a Kickstarter campaign. The public's response was sensational. As the collective's reputation grew, so did its budget, and so did its problems. Mark Wies recalled how the collective became more of a corporate art incubator within a short period of time, employing more non-local folks and effectively proletarianizing its founding members. Quote, a lot of us that built the house ended up in visitor service positions after it opened. I left for a year, and during that time, Meow Wolf became a company with a five-year plan, departments, a layer of management that had never been there before, unquote. Meow Wolf employees began to organize with Communication Workers of America as a way of ensuring that the collective adhered to at least some of its original grassroots ethos, even though the company had evolved into a flashy, gigantic venture. Other cultural institutions, including the Brooklyn Academy of Music and the Guggenheim, have also seen union drives in recent years to check the influence of big money and the exploitation of frontline cultural workers. Michael Wilson a member of the Meow Wolf Union's organizing committee, said, quote, part of Meow Wolf's mission is rattling the art market and making artists' careers sustainable to change people's perceptions of what labor is worth. If we want to set an example, we should, unquote. Predictably, there was pushback from the CEOs who gave the usual spiel that you'll find everywhere from art galleries to Home Depot about how, quote, the company works best without a union, unquote. They also attempted to bar the unionization of employees who are based in Denver and Las Vegas, and even allegedly retaliated against managers who had been sympathetic to the union. But perhaps the greatest challenge the organizing committee faced was convincing their co-workers that they were in fact workers. The lack of class consciousness is emblematic of a problem in a lot of creative fields in which it's almost a point of pride to impoverish oneself in pursuit of art. But Meow Wolf's Ascent shows that even when art workers insist on the purity of their mission, on thinking of themselves as too principled to care about money, their bosses are probably far more intentional and unabashed about turning a profit. And if workers don't know their worth, they won't be able to effectively negotiate power in the workplace. Among the issues that the Meow Wolf Union is tackling in ongoing contract negotiations are anti-discrimination and anti-harassment policies, as well as more decision-making power over how the company is run. Milagro Padilla, a CWA staffer who helped organize at Meow Wolf, said that the union helps dismantle the myth that organized labor and artistic careers are incompatible. Quote, people were sold an idea that unions were just for certain groups of people, he said, that workers like artists and tech workers didn't need a union. That couldn't be further from the truth. Work is work if you're running a fiber optic cables or designing worlds like the folks at Meow Wolf. Unions are far from perfect, but they're one of the best tools that the working class has, unquote. These days, Meow Wolf, like many art institutions, has been hard hit by the pandemic. There have been furloughs and layoffs affecting more than 250 people, despite the fact that the company secured millions of dollars in subsidies through the Federal Paycheck Protection Program. The power of the union is now no longer just about art workers wanting to take more control over their workplace, but about preserving the integrity of the organization and ensuring that people at the core of the group aren't left behind as the company they helped build becomes an unexpectedly successful media enterprise. 
One worker, quoted anonymously, pointed out that in the art industry, quote, artists are often seen as expendable, especially when your artwork becomes their artwork once it rolls out. Artists' roles have the worst pay rate throughout the creative department. And why not, when there's a line of unemployed artists outside at any given time, unquote. But the experience of the Meow Wolf Union, in which renegade artists gradually came to see themselves as part of a proletariat, might serve as a model for other cultural institutions on how to honor your calling as an artist while demanding respect as a worker. This week for ARG, I'm bringing you a piece by one of my favorite novelists, Vanessa Veselka, whose books Zazen and The Great Offshore Grounds I Cannot Recommend Enough as fictional understandings of working-class life in the present day. But the even better thing about Vanessa Veselka is that she's also a longtime union organizer, and she had a piece in the recent New York Times Sunday edition on that experience. It's called I'm a Longtime Union Organizer, But I Had Never Seen Anything Like This. I'm just kind of going to dive into her writing because I can't improve on it. She writes, quote, Last winter, workers at a memory care facility in western Oregon decided they were done watching the residents suffer. Conditions at the Rollin at Riverbend, a 72-bed home in Springfield, were horrific because of critically low staffing and a lack of training. Elderly residents screamed from their rooms for assistance, and workers had to make the kinds of decisions that people are forced to make in war. Do you take precious time to do emergency wound care, even though you aren't quite sure how, knowing that it means other residents might sit in their own feces for hours or trip and fall in the hallways? Do you stop to feed a resident who has trouble swallowing, knowing that others may not be fed if you do? End quote. The facility was owned by the company One Life, and the workers complained of understaffing so bad that questions like these were routine. Because of COVID, the families of the residents were unable to visit, and so pressure on the staff increased. And the workers were making barely above minimum wage. An experienced worker was making just $12.40 an hour and hanging on to try to provide necessary care. Veselka continues, quote, Caregivers at the Rollin formed a traumatized family, which grew closer with each new death. They called the state. They pleaded with management for more workers and higher wages to retain them, at least something more than what they'd earn at a food restaurant. Not knowing what else to do, they contacted the local union. I had been with the union for a year and a half when we got the call about the Rollin. As an organizer with Local 503 of the Service Employees International Union, I represented long-term care workers across the state of Oregon, and I knew that the nursing home industry had been in disarray even before the pandemic. When COVID hit, workers in some nursing homes had to walk around in garbage bags and use bandanas for masks long after the hospitals got proper personal protective gear. And in my experience, whatever is bad in standard nursing homes tends to be far worse in memory care. So I wasn't surprised to get a call from memory care workers. What would be a surprise is how dedicated they would become to forming a union. End quote. What follows in this piece is the kind of detailed understanding of how the NLRB election process works and doesn't work, and the reasons why the workers went a different route that you usually just don't get. As she writes, quote, Time is a white-collar weapon. People with resources can easily outweigh people with none. The longer it takes to get an election, the less chance workers have of winning their union, end quote. I am so tempted to just read the whole piece to you, but I want you to go read the whole thing instead. So I'm not going to. Also, it's long and that would take quite a while. And instead, I'm going to attempt to leave you in suspense, because this is actually what happened. Quote, by our count... 
85% of the eligible workers signed union cards within a week, and they approached management to demand recognition of their union. They gave management 72 hours to respond. We uploaded videos to social media showing the workers talking about the union drive, which meant the campaign was immediately public. After the Rollins said it would not voluntarily recognize the union, workers delivered notice of their intent to strike. End quote. And finally, one of the things that I love about this piece and about Veselka's writing in general is that she understands and makes so clear that union organizing and political organizing aren't just about bread and butter issues. As she writes, quote, as we won union elections at hospitals around the state, I saw that organizing could lead to far more than the right to bargain collectively for wages and benefits. It can be transformative. People decide to go back to school. They finally make appointments to see an eye doctor instead of relying on readers from the grocery store. They leave abusive partners. In short, they begin to imagine a better future, one that includes them. I loved witnessing that. That's all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on the supply chain crisis, the workers who bring you the stuff you need and want, for essential workers' strikes and union drives and ballot struggles over the future of work. Thanks, as always, go to the folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis, and now to Colin Kinneborough for editing us and producing us, and most importantly, to all of you for listening to us, for supporting us for what feels like a million years now, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories. We would especially appreciate it. We know money is tight, but... Saying nice things, as our friends at the Bad Gays Podcast like to say, is always free, and you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new listeners. Special thanks to those of you, of course, who are donors and sustaining members of the podcast, either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon page over at patreon.com slash belabored. We, of course, understand that money can be tight, but we really, really, really appreciate you helping support labor journalism, which is not free or cheap to produce. And we also have some cool gifts, including some lovely Molly Crabapple worker portraits, tote bags, and the like for all of our donors. You can always find out more about everything we do at descentmagazine.org slash belabored. And if you want to share your story of working or striking under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you're a nurse or a nursing home worker, a grocery store clerk, or a truck driver, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us, too, at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.